This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, April 28, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. What kind of constitution do we truly have? And how has the Legal Academy changed its understanding of that key document? Randy Barnett describes that in his new book, Our Republican Constitution, Securing the Liberty and Sovereignty of We the People. We spoke last week. Something that surprised me, and maybe it shouldn't have, was the idea that uh, southern states during the era of slavery were not really content with this notion, the so-called states' rights, a term I've never really cared for, um, and were uh, wanted to use the power of the federal government to enhance their position as slaveholders. Absolutely. It begins with the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793, where Congress passes a law to enforce the Fugitive Slave Clause. The Fugitive Slave Clause, as uh, future Republican Salmon Chase argued, uh, doesn't have an enforcement provision. It doesn't have a Congress empowering provision, unlike the Full Faith and Credit Clause in Article 4, which does. Uh, but Congress, uh, but that but Congress enacted this Fugitive Slave Law. Uh, and reenacted another one in 1850 when the first one didn't prove uh, effective enough. Um, but th- what was what was happening is that uh, the South were starting to take their slaves into the North, accompanying them when they went to the North. Um, and then they insisted they had a constitutional right to do this. Um, and as a result, gradually, what the Northerners were feeling like was that um, if they had a constitutional right under the Fifth Amendment, for example, to take their slaves into the North, then you know they were there. First of all, they were passing through. Okay, well that's one thing. Well now they're lingering, and now they're going to linger some more. So how long can that happen? So that was one way in which they were trying to impose slavery on the North. The most obvious way uh, was when the Supreme Court invalidated uh, personal liberty laws, and I talk about this in the book. Personal liberty laws in the North, which gave black in the North due process before they could be turned over to slave catchers to ensure that they actually were runaway slaves as opposed to free blacks, which they could have been in the North. And uh, the Supreme Court um, um, invalidated those laws and ju- in an opinion by Justice Story. Um, in Prigg versus Pennsylvania is the case. It should be an infamous case, but it's generally not all that well known. So Prigg versus Pennsylvania. Sam and Chase had a very interesting uh, description of the powers of states versus the federal government. And it it seems odd that it's not more widely known. That is, these were essentially compacts. Yes, articles of compact. Article 4, he said, of the Constitution. He developed this argument in the 1830s in order to defend a runaway slave that had been captured in Cincinnati where Sam and Chase practiced law. And he said that the fugitive slave, the so-called fugitive slave Clause, I say so-called because it actually doesn't use the word slave, um, uh, said that uh, it was in Article 4, and he claimed that all the provisions in Article 4 were interstate compact provisions, like treaties, to be enforced by states uh, by reciprocal action, the way nations enforce their own laws, except for the full faith and credit clause, which did give Congress an enumerated power to regulate the recognition of, of the judgments of one state over another. So with that exception, the rest of them, he said, were articles of compact. And Congress had no authority, no power under our Republican Constitution to enforce that. Um, and But that did not satisfy the slave states. And um, the most important thing that led to the rise of the Republican Party uh, was their um, uh, junking the Missouri Compromise, which then allowed slavery to exist north 
of the Mason-Dixon line, in particular in Nebraska and Kansas, in the Nebraska and Kansas Act. And they did so in the name of popular sovereignty, which is one reason it's, I talk about it in my book. They had a theory, Frederick Douglass' theory of popular sovereignty, um, uh, which he took from a previous politician named Lewis Cass, um, said that basically a majority in each territory ought to be able to decide whether they're slaveholders or not. And that's what true democracy requires. And, 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 and um, um, Douglas was a Democrat, uh, a party which called themselves the democracy. And so they wanted majority rule on who was going to be a slave. Now, of course, only white males were going to get to vote in these referenda. But even if you had broadened out suffrage to include all blacks, women, and slaves, they would still be outvoted uh, by the whites. Um, and as a result, they thought that, major that the majority should be able to even decide if you could be enslaved or not. That was the democratic vision of popular sovereignty. And it was that passage of that bill that broke the Missouri Compromise that led to the collapse of the Whig Party because they hadn't successfully opposed it and the rise of the Republican Party on the platform of non-extension of slavery into the territories and also uh, the end of slavery in the District of Columbia uh, and on uh, federal uh, installations. Yes. So what has happened to that chase idea that Article 4 is uh, among states, is, is uh, are agreements among states? It was rejected by... Chief, by Justice Story in the Prigg case, where he used the Necessary and Proper Clause to say that um, the Necessary and Proper Clause, which gives Congress the power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution its foregoing powers or any other power that's created by the Constitution, um, was, would allow Congress to enforce any right under the Constitution, would, of course, would have come as some news um, uh, to people in Congress at that time. But as a result of that, this was a broad, modern reading of the Necessary and Proper Clause. It was the f first time the Necessary and Proper Clause was truly used to expand federal power in a modern way. In defense of the in defense Slave of Act. The, the use of national power in defense of the Fugitive Slave Act. What is the Thayerian formulation of judicial deference? Well, uh, James Bradley Thayer was a Harvard Law professor, a colleague of um, uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes when he was on the Harvard Law faculty, uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. And he argued uh, in a very well-known and highly respected uh, article uh, to this day um, in the 1890s uh, that um, this courts should get out of the way of majoritarian legislation in the states um, and in the federal on the federal level, but particularly in the states, and should defer to Congress as long as no reasonable person could be found that would think a law uh, was outside the scope of the power of the legislature. And it really was up to the legislature itself, he said, to decide the scope of its own powers. This was an extreme form of judicial deference, an extreme for form of judicial restraint, and it was urged by progressives, and he was one, to get the courts out of the business of invalidating progressive laws, which at that time were being enacted at the state level, not at the federal level. And Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. Uh, was an a strong adherent of this view. He was put on the court, and I tell all of this in the book, all of the book, this whole story is in the book. He was put on the court by progressive Republican Theodore Roosevelt uh, because of these views that he had on restraint. Roosevelt was an ardent progressive, um, and he was very frustrated that the Republican Congress wouldn't pass all his progressive measures. Uh, but he put Holmes on the court, and then when uh, when Roosevelt ran for president in 1912, if he had been denied the Republican, first he ran for the Republican nomination um, uh, to secede Taft, and then he was denied that nomination. So then he ran as a third party 
uh, uh, he formed a new party called the Progressive Party. We call it the Bull Moose Party now, but that just conceals the fact that it really was the Progressive Party. Um, and he it went on the stump and in a, in a famous and a really well-attended lecture in Carnegie Hall, which I talk about in the book, and I read the New York Times article that just summarized what he said there. He was praising Justice Holmes's view of, uh, uh, of judicial restraint and condemning uh, the Bake Shop Act uh, case, the Bake Shop case. Well, what was the Bake Shop case? The Bake Shop case was made famous by Theodore Roosevelt in 1912 in this campaign for presidency. It was the Citizens United of the Day, and it was the Lochner case, Lochner versus New York, in which the court invalidated one provision of a very extensive health and safety regulation of the bake shop industry in New York. They invalidated the maximum hours provision, and Justice Holmes dissented vehemently from that. I hear echoes of that line of thinking in, you talked about the... uh idea that of finding one reasonable person who would disagree with this idea. I hear echoes of that in uh, the standard of a reasonable expectation of privacy in, in some cases, which is the, it's, a, it's just a fuzzy term where reasonableness could mean any number of things. Yeah, the reasonable expectation of privacy concept uh, was in a concurring opinion, not actually in the real opinion of the case. It got picked up by the court and used. It's somewhat of a circular idea um, as to whether uh, you, you need a search warrant to go into some place where someone has a reasonable expectation of privacy. Well, might might depend on whether they think you have need a search warrant to get there or not, whether they have a re- So whether you get a search warrant or not depends on if the person believes you need a search warrant uh, and that will depend on whether they reasonably believe you need a search warrant. It's very circular. In fact, several justices of the Supreme Court have expressed dissatisfaction with this particular standard. Um, yeah, but this is more extreme than that because this is saying that as long as no person who could be deemed reasonable would think that this particular law is beyond the powers of Congress to enact, then it's not beyond the powers of Congress to enact. It's all it takes is one, uh, which basically makes it in practice, and it is meant to make in practice, an irrebuttable presumption in favor of the constitutionality of any exercise of power. Um, and that is what the, that's a principal tenet of the democratic constitution. And the, we should just talk about what that is. The democratic constitution is based on the premise that we, the people, should be considered not as individuals but as a group, and that what uh, the government is there for is to express the will of the people, and the will of the people can only be reflected in a majority of the people. And anything that gets in the way of what the majority of the people want or the will of the people is suspect, including judges. If judges get in the way of the will of the people, they're suspect. Um, And that's what I call the democratic constitution. In contrast, the Republican constitution, which goes all the way back to the Declaration of Independence, views we the people as individuals. And we know that from the Declaration because it says that we the people have the individual rights of to, li- to pursue uh, to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And then it says in the very next sentence, which is not always stressed, it is to, it, to that to secure these rights, the individual rights he just mentioned, governments are instituted men, deriving their just powers, not any and all and every conceivable power, but their just powers from the consent of the governed. I have chapter one of the book is about the Declaration of Independence, and that's the Republican Constitution. If you take that view of the Constitution, then the, the point of the Constitution is not to set up a government in which the people rule. The point of the Constitution is to set up a government that, that will protect the rights of the people, and then the written Constitution provides the law that governs those who govern us. It's the law that governs them. And we need an independent judiciary who are themselves the servants of the people, whose job it is to make sure all the other government 
agents, the executive and the judicial, uh, the executive and the and the legislative branches play within the rules of our Republican Constitution. It's a complete, a, a different. This, the book is about how a different vision of we the people yields a different vision for the role of judges. I, Clark Neely over at the Institute for Justice would call uh, this judicial deference one flavor of fake judging. Yes, fake judging. And I talk about Clark in the book, and I talk about the cases that the Institute for Justice. Um, uh, uh, litigates. I was actually, I actually ran into John Kramer of IJ last night at a dinner, and I was saying how the my what, and I was telling him about the book, and I said, look, the book involved it, it captures, it tells the story of the entire sweep of American history, beginning with the Declaration of Independence and culminating with the Institute for Justice. That is the arc of American history that this book tells. I'm sure that John Kramer was pleased to hear about that. Um, so where do we stand today with the descriptions of this presumption of government power versus a presumption of liberty uh, is still here? Yeah. Well, this book is actually a little bit less about my last book, Restoring the Lost Constitution, the Presumption of Liberty, was making a strong argument on, behavior, uh, on, be, on behalf of a presumption in favor of liberty, and I still favor that. One of the things that comes out at the end of this book when I talk about how judges should be examining laws to see if they are irrational or arbitrary is that it turns out it's less important who has the burden of proof, which I think it is important, but it's less important who has the burden of proof, the government or the individual, then that the individual is even allowed to come into court and offer proof. And one of the little dirty little secrets of constitutional law that is not taught in constitutional law classes, and that is that even the New Deal Court, which we take to be the high watermark of government power, they did not make the presumption of constitutionality, the presumption that laws are constitutional, they did not make that, constitution, that presumption irrebuttable. You were still allowed, the court insisted in the famous case of United States versus Caroline Products, you're still allowed. They said it would deny due process of law to stop you from going to court and presenting evidence that the law was irrational or arbitrary, especially as it might be applied to you. It wasn't until the Warren Court, in the case of Williamson v. Leoptical, that they moved to the Holmesian Thayer position that really ought to be irrebuttable. Prior to that, they, they occupied a middle ground, and it was a middle ground that had been identified in the Lochner case by Justice Harlan, John Harlan. And um, it was his dissenting opinion in Lochner that was the first move the court made, and it was only later in the 50s they ultimately moved on to Holmes's dissent in Lochner. So what matters is judges are going to do real scrutiny regardless of who may bear the burden of proof. And that's part of their job as servants of the people to ensure that legislators remain within what the Declaration calls their just powers. Merrick Garland is President Obama's nominee to succeed Antonin Scalia on the Supreme Court. And, and some people, uh, libertarians, have pointed to some good applications of Supreme Court rulings that he has uh, delivered. but. Applying a judgment is different from making your own. Right. Well, look, Merrick, Merrick Garland was a classmate of mine in law school. He was not only a classmate of mine, he was a section mate, which means we took all the same classes together. He was one of the top students in the class. He was one of the two or three biggest gunners in the class who would argue with the professors quite effectively. We all looked up to him. He's a very decent man. Um, I actually gave a lecture on uh, the slaughterhouse cases at the Supreme Court Historical Society, and he attended the lecture, uh, which was very gracious of him. And uh, so I, I like him a great deal. 
Um, but he's a very good example of why nowadays qualifications are necessary to be on the court, but they are not sufficient. In the old days, when everybody agreed about what the Constitution was, then basically you just wanted smart people who knew what they were doing. But now we have a fundamental disagreement, and this book is about that. The book is about the disagreement between the democratic constitution based on a collective reading of we the people and the republican constitution based on an individual reading of we the people. And we have a fundamental divide in this country between the parties that on, this, on this issue. So you have the democratic appointed justices who are absolutely uniformly lockstep in favor of the democratic constitution. You have on republican nominated judges who vacillate. Sometimes they're for it. Sometimes they're against. In the Obamacare case, Chief Justice Roberts was for it insofar as he said that an individual insurance mandate was beyond the power of Congress. Well, that was the good part. But then he adopted the Democratic Constitution's deference to Congress to change the law so that he could uphold it because he felt that was his duty. So he was of two minds, both Republican and Democrat. Now with the death of Justice Scalia, replacing Justice Scalia uh, is going to dictate the future direction of the court is whether we're going to have five implacable adherence to the democratic constitution or five someday, sometimes supporters of the Republican constitution, hopefully the new justice would be. And the problem with Merrick Garland is his lower court opinions demonstrate that he is an absolute consistent adherent to the democratic constitution. He defers to administrative agencies all the time. He voted to reconsider the Heller case, which protected the individual right to keep and bear arms. He, was, he, didn't, win, he didn't prevail in that vote, but he was on the side of reconsidering that decision. Um, and uh, so he, he's a very good and decent man, but he believes in a conception of the constitution that, um, that I think is wrong uh, and that the only way we're going to get the Supreme Court to change is to have justices who believe in the Republican constitution and, and he just doesn't. If he, and no person that President Obama will nominate would or, or the Hillary Clinton would nominate would believe in the Republican constitution. And at the, when the chips are down, no matter how reasonable and moderate and intelligent they are, and I, by the way, have a world of respect for Justice Kagan, who I knew before she, she became a justice, they all at the end of the day vote the same way. In the medical marijuana case of Gonzalez versus Raich, when I was defending the rights of my clients to use marijuana for medical purposes as authorized by state law, one would expect if the court was acting politically in an ideological sense, it would appeal to the left side of the court and the right side of the court who don't like drugs, it would not appeal to. But that's not what happened. We had four implacable votes against us on the left side of the court because they had a principled a commitment to national power, the democratic constitution's national power. And we got three conservative votes um, from Chief Justice Rehnquist and O'Connor and uh, Thomas for the rights of states to make their own drug policy under our Republican Constitution. And we lost the case when Justice Kennedy and Scalia uh, defected to the Democratic Constitution side in that case. Um, just Judge Garland, Merrick Garland, who's a very decent and an honorable man, would be a consistent vote for the Democratic Constitution in the Rage case. He would have been a consistent vote for the Democratic Constitution in the NFIB Obamacare case. Uh, and for that reason, um, uh, he should, I mean, he and anybody that a Democratic president would appoint should be opposed. And I think it's right, given the consequences for the future of the court that this appointment is going to have, and given that fact that we're on the cusp 
of a national election, which will tell us whether the next president is going to be a Republican or a Democrat, that this decision be put off until November. And I was pleased that the Republicans in the Senate have decided to do that. And I actually was, I ran into uh, both, I ran into Speaker McConnell last night, and who's somebody who I hadn't actually met until last night. And I made a point to go up to him, shake his hand, and thank him for taking the stand that he took um, uh, uh, by allowing this decision to get put off past the election so that now the people have a chance to debate whether we're going to have a Republican constitution in the future or whether we're going to have a Democratic constitution in the future. Is this dispute, you put it, Republican versus Democratic constitution, and those aren't references to parties? They're not, except for the fact that today's Democratic Party is uniformly in favor of the Democratic constitution, what I'm calling that. Today's Republican Party, I wish they were uniformly in favor of the Republican constitution because then maybe I would be a Republican. Um, but uh, they are the party who was formed in defense of the Republican Constitution. Sam and Chase helped help form the party, and they passed constitutional amendments to end slavery. They weren't going to do it by interpreting the Necessary and Proper Clause. They actually passed constitutional amendments under Article 5 the right way um, and improved the Republican Constitution in ways that had been woefully defective by allowing slavery in the states. Um, and so the Republican Party is the natural home of the Republican Constitution. It's just that, as I already mentioned, Teddy Roosevelt, a Republican, um, Herbert Hoover, another Republican, pointed more, more, appointed more justices to the court that uh, undid the Republican Constitution. And, um, you know, the Bushes have not been any friends to the Republican Constitution either. So you can't count on a Republican being in favor of it. But this book really is aimed at Republicans arguing that their heritage should cause them to favor what I'm calling the Republican Constitution. But is is this dispute, this idea, uh, drawing a, drawing this line between Republican and Democratic constitutions, is that where we get these balancing tests and things that uh, pit rights against another and question whether or not we can combine rights? Well, here's what you get. Once the, I mean, the Democrats, the actual political Democrats, um, both the Northern progressives and the Southern segregationists, both asserted the Democratic Constitution to get the court out of the business of stopping progressive legislation in the North and attacking Jim Crow in the South. So they both were, the two members of the coalition were thoroughly committed to the Democratic Constitution, right up until the time they took over the court. And at about the time they took over the court, they started to have second thoughts about the Democratic Constitution, then they started qualifying their commitment, and then they started recognizing, or at least they allowed the possibility to recognize, well, there might be certain fundamental rights that we might want to protect, special ones, especially the right of, uh, uh, of uh, intellectual argument, political argument, like our left-wing friends are doing. They, that should be protected. And maybe there are certain classes of people that ought to be protected, special ones that we will recognize. But So they started making exceptions to the Democratic Constitution. And they really started thinking about that hard when the Republicans took control of Congress in 1946. And I talk about this in the book. And Arthur Schlesinger Jr. coined the phrase judicial activism to describe the members of the Supreme Court who were sort of affiliated with the Yale Law School, who decided that, you know, really, maybe the problem before wasn't that the court was act, acting politically because, you know, courts are going to act politically inevitably. Maybe the problem was they were acting politically in favor of uh, the wrong things. And we really need courts to act politically in favor of the right things. So even the Democrats couldn't live with the Democratic Constitution in the pure form, its purest form, and we don't have that today. We have a generally Democratic Constitution, more so than our Republican Constitution should allow, with exceptions for 
some of the guarantees in the Bill of Rights, although, you know, now the Democrats don't like the Second Amendment. They didn't like that before. They don't like the First Amendment as much, like in the Citizens United. They don't like free speech on campus so much anymore either. So they're kind of good with the uh, uh, some of the amendments. And certain suspect classes get protected as well. But other than that, we have a democratic constitution. And the Republican side, um, you know, more or less, they've just wanted to add things to the list, like let's add states to the list of suspect classifications so we can protect states from the federal government. Well, that's okay. It's a step in the right direction. But this book argues, and my last book argued, that we really need across the board adherence to the Republican Constitution, not just the parts we like. Randy Barnett is author of Our Republican Constitution, Securing the Liberty and Sovereignty of We the People. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.